Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Last week, uh, we began a new series in the Gospel of Mark, which should carry us forward uh, for about 74 weeks, give or take a few. And we will be journeying through uh, this book verse by verse, as is the practice of our church. Last week we introduced uh, the series by looking specifically just at verse 1. Verse 1 functions uh, much like the title uh, of this work. Uh, He introduces this work as the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This book is a book about Jesus Christ. We talked about last week that actually every single paragraph Every single sort of pericope or section of this book has Jesus as the main character, except for two passages. Uh, And those two passages, really Jesus still is the main character, but John the Baptist is talked about as the character of focus in those paragraphs. And that's one one of the paragraphs that we'll look at today with John the Baptist as the focus. Last week we also just took a moment to recognize and to celebrate the fact that the Gospel of Mark, this book that we're going to study, is, is a real work of history. Um, this is a real book written by a real historical man named Mark, also goes by John Mark, who was really historically an eyewitness to many of the most amazing things the Lord was doing in the first century. We talked about that it was in John Mark's house, the upper room, that the Last Supper was likely had between Jesus and his his disciples. It was John Mark's house in the upper room where the Holy Spirit of God fell in Acts chapter 2 after Jesus had rose from the dead uh, and Peter's first sermon was preached. We learn that John Mark became a a co-laborer with the Apostle Paul, planting churches across the uh, Roman Empire. We did not talk about last week that at one point, Paul did not want John Mark to go with him anymore uh, because he said that John Mark was not useful to him and there was actually a divide over some of the missionaries. And then years later, Paul comes back and invites John Mark to help him to do something, saying he's useful in ministry. So, so John Mark is this real person who apparently uh, had, a, had a low moment or for some reason, Paul said, I don't want him to go with me. I don't know, maybe he snores a lot or he... No, it, it, John, uh, John Mark had abandoned him at one point in the mission and Paul said, I I need somebody who's going to stick with me all the way through, and John Mark had abandoned uh, him at one point. So this is a historical man who, who saw Jesus in the flesh, saw the resurrected Jesus, was there for the first sermon ever preached by Peter, was there for church planting throughout the book of Acts, and even at the end of his life was doing ministry with Peter in the city of Rome, and wrote the gospel of Mark with Peter articulating many of the memories and many of the things for which Mark was not there for, and Mark writing them down. And so, so by way of introduction, before we even get into verse 2, we've considered the historical nature of the author of this book, but I also want us just to pause at the beginning and consider the historical nature of the recipients of this book, okay? So every time a book of the Bible is written, uh, it has an intended audience. Anybody who's a good author or a good speaker or communicator they craft their message with an intended audience in mind. So when Mark sat down to write the Gospel of Mark, it, it, it wasn't just in a vacuum. There were very real things happening in the world at the time of his writing, especially in the city of Rome. 
And when he sat down to write the Gospel of Mark in A.D. 67, give or take a few years, um, in A.D. 67, a fire had just broke out and swept across the city of Rome and created devastation that, uh, 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 by comparison, would make Katrina just look like a bad day, okay? 80% of the city has been burned with fire. People have lost businesses and homes. They're displaced. Uh, for seven days, this fire raged, and uh, they knocked it down, and then it started back up again for a little while. And, and in this moment in history, there is an emperor over the city of Rome named Nero who was increasingly crazy uh, as he ruled over the Roman Empire, and many people began to suspect that he's the one that set the city ablaze. Uh, he wanted to rebuild the thing, wanted to remodel, so he sets the city ablaze. Whether that's true or not, uh, the reality is, is that the Emperor Nero needed a scapegoat. He needed a group of people to blame for such a wide-scale devastation over who was supposed to be like the top dog of cities, right? The city of Rome, the, the eternal empire that would never come to an end. He needed a people to blame. Now, now if you're looking for a people to blame, uh, you're wanting to blame a people that are not that big of a threat to you. Uh, you're wanting to blame a group of people that it's easy to sort of rally around uh, to, to blame. And the Christians fit the bill perfectly, okay? The, the Christians uh, were the, this weird group of oddballs set apart from the Roman Empire because they did not worship the sort of pantheon of Roman gods. They didn't go to the temples. They didn't participate in the festivities or the feasts or the parties. They, 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 they not only did not participate in those types of things, but they were a weird group of people who embraced the lowest of the lows into their lives and homes. They, they, the people whom you, who would be made fun of to even look at or talk with or associate with, the Christians were like, you guys come on in for dinner. <laughs> like, you guys come on in. And so this weird group of people who didn't worship their gods, hung out with the lowliest of people, they became the obvious scapegoat for the fire that happened in Rome. It, they're not worshiping our gods, therefore the gods are angry, therefore the, the fire came, and it's the Christian's fault. And so the Roman Emperor Nero rallies the empire against the Christians um, in sort of gruesome ways. I mean, he fills colosseums to be entertained at the torture and killing of Christians. One practice that he was known for would be to skin animals and then to dress the, the Christians in, uh, in the bloody skins of animals and then to put them into the arena and to let loose starving dogs to chase them, uh, thinking that they were food. And the people would cheer and watch. They were fed to lions. They were crucified in masses. Uh, one of the more gruesome tales is that he would take Christians and wrap them in tar, and he would set them on poles in his garden, uh, and he would throw parties, and the burning of the Christians would be the lanterns that provide the light for his gardens. And Christians are 
in the city of Rome are pushed out of Rome or they're, they're forced to meet in hiding. Uh, many of the places that they would meet, they would actually meet in graveyards or in tombs uh, where you couldn't see the light of their lanterns so that they could gather and worship. Anne Marie and I, uh, when we went to Egypt, actually saw in Cairo, we, we, would, we would go down into these uh, tombs of pharaohs and those types of things and, and you would see on the wall right beside Egyptian hieroglyphics, then you would see like a painting of Jesus. And you're like, well, these are not the same time period. How did this happen? And it's like, well, well, under times of persecution throughout Christian history, the Christians would meet in the tombs. Uh, how ironic is that? A risen Savior meeting, but you're meeting in a tomb and painting pictures of Christ Christian symbols on, on the walls. And so, so, I, so, so all of this is just sort of introductory to the book, uh, but it's helpful to understand that the first readers, and including Mark, the first writers, this is the world they're living in, right? And so imagine with me, you, you are, are meeting together in hiding, and somebody shows up and says, I've got a copy of Mark's book, you know, the, you know, the book we've all been waiting on. He's, he, he's, he's finished with it. I've got a copy with it. And they, you know, they start handing out or whatever, and you're, you sit. And, and the questions that you've got in your mind as a Christian in this day are, are profound questions, right? I mean, is this worth it? Is this really the way of Christ? Is, is, is this what I've been called to? This, this life of sort of self-denial and sacrifice and pain and heartache, like, like is this worth it? And then you, you, you take the Gospel of Mark and you begin to open to read and the beginning, verse 1, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. And, and, and there's a feeling in you, maybe, that how is this good news? <laughs> how is this good news for me? And what we'll see in the Gospel of Mark is that uh, unlike, uh, more than any other Gospel, it may be the shortest of Gospels, but more than any other Gospel, Mark highlights the themes of Jesus's suffering for you on his behalf or on your behalf and Jesus's call to Christians to deny themselves to repent of their sins and to humble themselves before the leading of the Lord servanthood is emphasized in this book more than any other gospel and so, so with all those things in mind, now that, that, that's, that's introductory, you know, I, it, it's hard to do an introduction of the book, you got to do little pieces at a time as we roll, uh, but with that kind of setting in mind, that's how I want us to go forward through the Gospel of Mark, and, and as we preach through different passages, pause and say, okay, how do I understand this, but how would the first readers have heard this and understood that? So, so let's read with the context in our minds now. Um, beginning with verse 2, let's read all the way down to verse 8 as Mark introduces us to the, uh, or walks us through the prologue of this book. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness 
and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. Weird dude. Verse 6. Verse 7. He preached, saying... After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, help us to hear the words of this gospel and help us to respond. I pray that uh, this text is sort of, uh, there's so many moving pieces in this text that it feels sort of disorganized and sort of hard to uh, hit all of them. And so, God, I just pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit promised in verse 8, that you would bring clarity uh, to, to this, opening di- this opening prologue and that you would use this to convict us and encourage us just like you used it to convict and encourage the people of God uh, for 2,000 years, Lord. And we love you. And we pray this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Truth number one. We'll start off with the truth. Truth number one is this. The gospel was God's plan from the beginning. Verse one introduces us to the theme of the book, that this book's all about who Jesus, the Son of God, is. Uh, But verse 2, immediately, the way that Marcus chose to begin this is to quote from the Old Testament. It's a collaboration of multiple texts, uh, uh, one text uh, sort of generally from Exodus, another text from Malachi chapter 4, another text from Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, Verse 2, why why would Mark do this? Why would you begin with a quotation uh, that is 700 years old? I think that from the beginning that what Mark wants to communicate to you, the reader, is that what follows is not something new, it's the fulfillment of promises that are very old. That God for a long time has been promising his people who are enduring many things that there is coming a day of hope. God has been making promises for a very long time and, and in the person of Jesus and in the arrival of a messenger named John the Baptist, God was keeping those promises. Throughout the Bible, God's people have been a people of the wilderness, a people who find themselves in exile-like situations waiting for God to fulfill what he promised would come. So Mark begins with the fulfillment of some promises. Isaiah chapter 40 was written to the people of God who were living under the oppression of Babylonian exile, surrounded by idol worshipers, um, oppressed by a kingdom that rejected the one true God. God's people had been displaced, and they were longing for a better day. And Isaiah chapter 40 is a prophecy designed to bring comfort to the people that there is coming a day 
There is coming a day where God's people will no longer have to live in exile. Listen to uh, Isaiah chapter 40. If you want to turn there, um, uh, I invite you to, but it'll be on the screen. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Just some context for the quotation of this Old Testament text. Isaiah 40, verse 3. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So the, in locations where uh, prosperity and thriving is not normal, in the desert, God is paving a way through the wilderness to do something, right? Verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and this is what God's going to do. Verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty like the flower of the field. He's talking about the, the temporal nature of this present moment or this difficulty. Verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up, go on up to a high mountain, O herald. And this should sound familiar. Herald of good news, herald of gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Every Israelite boy and girl would have known these promises. That the glory of God would one day be revealed that he would somehow come to them and tend them like a shepherd tends to his flocks and embrace them and draw them near to him. One day, the days of exile would be over. In fact, the very last paragraph of the last prophet in the Old Testament leaves the reader with hope yet to be fulfilled. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, another passage that Mark is alluding to in these first verses. Listen to what Malachi says. These are the last words of the Old Testament. Verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like cows from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 4, remember the law of servant Moses, the statutes, the rules I've commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Then verse 5 and 6 is interesting, at the very end of Malachi. It says that before all these things, things takes place, before this wonderful moment of salvation occurs, before this sort of end time of healing and righteousness and leaping around like calves from the stalk, before all this happens, there's going to come a messenger. And verse 5 describes him to be like the prophet Elijah. Verse 5, Behold, 
I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. These are the last words of the Old Testament. Hang in there. Hold on. Hold to hope. There's coming a day of healing, of rejoicing. But following that prophecy, there were 400 years of prophetic silence. (laughs) Just silence. No word from God. No sign of any fulfillment of this. During that 400 years, Rome takes... Uh, becomes the empire that it's that it is. It, it, he, Rome oppresses uh, the Jerusalem, uh, Jeruz, the Jews again and again. The people find themselves living in a broken world of oppression and suffering, and they are meant to hope for something. And the thing that they're supposed to hope for is that they're waiting to hear from somebody. Somebody's going to show up on the scene, and they're going to announce that the time is here. And that somebody is going to be like a dude named Elijah. Powerful prophet in First and Second Kings. Elijah, the prophet who confronted evil kings and preached a powerful message. A prophet who was often in exile in the wilderness because of his message. A prophet who apparently had similar fashion advice uh, as John the Baptist. Second Kings chapter 1, verse 8. Speaking of uh, Elijah, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah. Elijah is coming to proclaim the day of hope, the day of healing, the day of salvation. God made a promise that someone would come like that. And Mark chapter 1 begins with an encouragement that God kept that promise. Someone did come. Now look back with me at Mark chapter 1. Verse 4 and 5 and 6. After quoting all that Old Testament prophecy and hope, and this is what God's going to do, as it is written 700 years before, someone's going to announce the coming day of hope and salvation. And then verse 4, John appeared. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. A voice comes crying out from the wilderness saying, the time is at hand. And this voice comes from a man who sounds a lot like Elijah, dresses a lot like Elijah, preaches a message a lot like Elijah, starts speaking about prophecies of Malachi and Isaiah and the coming Lord. Prepare your hearts. The time is here. Have hope, children of Israel, for the the promises of the Old Testament are, are coming to pass. And John began to prepare the people's hearts for the thing that God had planned to do since the beginning of time. That is, the coming of Jesus Christ. But how do you prepare your hearts for the coming of Jesus Christ? What what is the message of this prophet, John the Baptist, preached, uh, uh, prophesied 700 years prior? How do you prepare the way of 
the Lord? What is the way of the Lord, the path down which God travels to meet you where you are and bring you good news? Look with me at verse 4, which summarizes the message of this voice crying in the wilderness. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Truth number two that we see in this text and in the message of John the Baptist is this, that the way of the Lord is repentance and forgiveness. The way you proclaim, the way you prepare to meet Jesus, to, to meet the one who is coming, is through repentance and forgiveness. And John the Baptist preaches this message, but he doesn't just preach this message, he introduces this sort of visual symbol or sign act uh, to, to sort of embody or put on display what the message is. So, so, so I want you just to think through me. So he's saying... Repent and be, uh, uh, repent for the forgiveness of sins and be baptized. Um, trying to see if I want to go out of order here. Let me look first at the words uh, of his message, and then I want to look at the how the baptism's actually working here. The message is repent. And this is an important word. A very important word in the New Testament. Um, it's how John's message is summarized. It's how Jesus' message is summarized. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus starts to preach, and this is what he preaches. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's the summary of the disciples when they go out to preach. Mark chapter 6, verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. I mean, the word literally means to, to change your mind. I mean, in the Greek, I mean, the, the word is just mind change. It is, it is to reconsider your life's purpose. To repent is to, to shift how you relate to God, how you relate to sin, how do you relate to yourself, how you relate to the world around you. It is to repent is sort of a life-changing turn from the, the path of destruction that you're on to the path of life which God has invited you to. It, it is a reorientation of thinking, feeling, acting. And in order to turn like this, in order to transform like this, what's necessary is that you recognize how much you need to do this, right? And this is why repentance and confession are words that often happen in the same sentence. You look in verse 5, it says that all the country of Judea and, Ju and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins, so, so they're confessing, my way is not a good way. I have, I've, I've neglected the one true God and rejected him in my thoughts, feelings, actions, and life entirely. And I must turn now away from the way in which I was walking, which served myself, and down the way which now serves Yahweh, the one true God. So, so this is the way you prepare to meet the Lord, <laughs> 
I mean, this is the path of good news, the doorway into relationship with Christ that we enter into and the path we walk for the rest of our lives. John was calling people who had, who had forgotten the Lord, who had ceased to serve the Lord, who had made religion more about themselves than the glory of God, and he's calling them to honestly assess yourself and confess your failure and renew your allegiance to the one true God. And then he says... I want you to visually symbolize that through a sign act, an act of baptism. Now, throughout the Old Testament, prophets were known for their sign acts, for their sort of visual symbols that made powerful their messages that they were preached. So, for example, Jeremiah. God tells Jeremiah to go to the store and buy a big pot. Jeremiah buys a big pot, and then he goes and he stands in front of the whole people of Israel who are living in idolatry, and he takes that pot, and he just smashes the thing on the ground. And they're like, what are you doing, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah says, God's going to do this to you if you don't repent. <laughs> over and over again throughout the Old Testament, God calls prophets to these sort of visual, symbolic actions which make clear the spiritual reality, okay? And here's John the Baptist, a prophet like Elijah, and he's saying, repent, confess your sins, prepare your way for the Lord, and then proclaim it to all of us through this action. Now, the word baptism literally means immersion, to immerse oneself, okay? So he's going to take the pe person who says, yes, I want to reorient my life to the one true God. And he says, okay, well, we're going to publicly declare this for everyone to see, and we're going to immerse you into the waters of the Jordan River and rise you up again to walk into this life of repentance which you have just proclaimed. John was calling people to publicly confess sin and symbolize their comprehensive change of mind and life by being fully immersed in the waters of the Jordan. The way of the Lord Jesus would be a way that, that totally alters life, shapes the way you view the world, and comprehensively changes your purpose. It would be a way in which you, may, you cannot walk this way without confessing sin and embracing a new Lord of life. Jesus would call people to, to, in the simplest terms possible, Jesus' call was, follow me. But that meant so much more than just those two words encompass. Jesus would, would look at his disciples and he would call them uh, to, to sacrifice, to, to totally see the world in a new light, to see this mo historical moment in a new light. He would say things like, Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. And those words mean a lot when they're read in this setting, but can you imagine how those words would have been taken in the first century setting we talked about at the beginning of this message? The invitation of the gospel was an invitation to repent and to submit your life entirely to a new Lord. 
one in which you would love with the entirety of your heart, the entirety of your soul, the entirety of your mind, the entirety of your strength. The Gospel of Mark time and time again teaches that true salvation can never be less than confession of your need for Christ and repentance of living life as if you're the Lord of it. <laughs> Total change of mind and purpose. And I, and I want to pause here and I want to emphasize the sweetness of of that aspect of the gospel, because I think, I think that when we hear words like repent and confess of sin, confess your sin, we can, we can have in mind John the Baptist, uh, this, this man in the wilderness who's denying himself, he's sort of like rejected by what is normal in society, and he's preaching repent. We can sort of see John the Baptist in our minds as sort of this angry man, who's preaching that the wrath of God is coming and, and all you must repent now or fire will fall on your heads. And there are elements in, in which that is true. But the, the repentance part and the confess your sins part, that's not bad news, that's good news. Repentance is, is not a, a, a bad thing you must do now to, to, to be forgiven. It's a gift of the Lord in itself. It's a huge part of what the good news is. We Christians have the privilege of repenting, of totally turning from the way we once thought and lived and behaved to a new way of thinking and living and behaving. Acts chapter 11 verse 18 literally says that God has granted repentance that leads to life. He's not left us alone to walk paths of destruction, to be deceived by twisted styles of life. He has granted us the opportunity to the, the gift of total life, mind, and heart transformation. He has granted us the gift of repent, repentance. And baptism is not only a symbol of one's total commitment to the Lord, it is a symbol of the Lord's work to totally cleanse us of all the sins that we've ever committed. The good news message of Jesus is that you are free to confess sin. You are free to confess your need of repentance because the, the promise of God is that you need this and that he will totally cleanse you and forgive you of every sin. The good news is that God has invited you graciously to repent of sin and walk down the path of life in the confidence of forgiveness. The way of the Lord is repentance and forgiveness. As John the Baptist preached that message of hope and repentance, um, God was doing a work through him, and people were flocking to John the baptizer. John was historically uh, making a name for himself as this sort of preacher in the wilderness to which people were like leaving the cities in droves to hear this man. Could this be the prophet that has been promised for hundreds of years? He's preaching boldly. He's, 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 he's uh, having many converts. People are coming to, to, to repent of their sins and turn again to the one true God. And, 
And, and you got to love how Mark, uh, in writing this, and how John the Baptist himself are very quick to clarify that there is nothing special or saving about the water baptism that John was doing. John was calling people to respond with this symbolic act of faith and repentance, but the real work, the real saving work, the real heart-changing, soul-cleansing work was different than what John was capable of performing. John's ministry was simply a pointing beyond himself to the person, work, and ministry of the Son of God. Look at verse 7. Mark chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Truth number three and our last truth for this morning, God's messengers point beyond themselves to someone greater. John was an amazing man who drew a crowd, saw many people repent and believe. He was the fulfillment of prophecy spoken hundreds of years prior. It, it, was, it was an amazing thing to sit under the preaching of John the Baptist, but the amazing thing about John the Baptist was not John the Baptist. The amazing thing about John the Baptist was the one whom he was pointing everyone to. There was a humility in John the Baptist that recognized his role in the kingdom of God as simply someone who pointed. He was not the one who could usher in the kingdom. He was not the one saving anyone. He could not bear the sins of the world. He could not secure forgiveness. He could not change anyone's heart. But he was pointing to someone who could. Someone who was mightier than him, someone so unbelievably worthy that John considered himself not worthy of performing the most, the most uh, uh, sickening of tasks. I mean, in that day, uh, sandals would become disgusting after walking through mud and animal dung all day. The, you, you get inside someone's home, the first thing you want to do is take off your disgusting sandals. Uh, you, you weren't wearing socks back then and boots, so you take off your disgusting sandals and have your feet washed. It was a task that people would not even do themselves. It was seen as, as below, be, below you to untie your own shoes. And so it was reserved for the lowest and lowest of servants to come. And you'd sit down and someone would do that for you, take care of the cleansing of the feet. And, and then you would go on about your day. And John the Baptist said, oh my goodness, if I, if I was allowed to do that for the one to come, it would be an honor of which I am not worthy. John was baptizing with water, but the one to come would baptize people in the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I need to pause there and just consider the theological weight of that statement. Whoever was coming was going to have the authority and the ability to immerse someone in the very spiritual life of God, the Spirit of God, the 
The outpouring of God's Spirit was something that the people longed for. It signified the end time, the end days where, where the hope will be fulfilled. Isaiah chapter 44 verse 3, God himself says, says, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendant. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26, I will give you a new heart, a, a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Throughout the Old, Old Testament, Isaiah and Ezekiel clearly understood that only God himself could pour his spirit upon his people, could immerse them in the very blessing and life of God. But, but now, according to Mark and according to John, the one who is to come has the authority to pour out the very spirit of God on those who believe and repent. And that person is Jesus Jesus was, was coming not just to offer, give you the opportunity to repent and believe and totally change your life. Jesus was bringing the spiritual ability to do so by the miracle of the Holy Spirit. He would cause people to be born again. He would fill people with the very presence of God so that they might walk in repentance for the rest of their days. John the Baptist saw himself not as the one who could accomplish something like that, but as the one who pointed to the only one who can accomplish something like that. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so Christians, we should see ourselves in the same way. We are messengers in the wilderness, unworthy to untie the shoes of the one who has saved our souls and filled us with the Spirit of God. And John the Baptist hears a prequel his picture is a prequel to what will be emphasized in the Gospel of Mark over and over and over again. That the exalted will be humbled. And the humbled will be exalted. Jesus himself would say in Mark chapter 10 that whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Uh, you imagine um, people hearing this for the first time in the cave after having become Christians thinking, surely this can't be the way. <laughs> And as early as the first paragraph of the book, you find this man who is most heralded and most exalted because he was exiled in the wilderness and he saw himself as the least of these. So how do we respond to all this? Um, John the Baptist's message was not meant for, to entertain you or uh, to just give you knowledge. It was meant to be preached and responded to. So how should you respond to it this morning? Uh, let me, allow me to give you three responses. Number one, confess and repent for the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't matter what service it is or in what setting it is. Uh, there's always some in the room or some watching online uh, who have never responded to God in this way at all. And they stand condemned for their sins unless they respond the way that God has called them to. And so I'd, I'd, it would be unfaithful for me to end this sermon without asking, have you ever confessed your sin? Have you ever confessed to God that you don't actually have it all together? That you've not worshipped Him as He deserves? You've not known Him as He desires to be known? You've lived your life very much for yourself rather than for the glory of the one who gives breath in your lungs. Have you ever confessed your sin and asked for forgiveness through the penalty that Jesus paid on your behalf? Have you ever repented? 
had a, a life-changing orientation, a, a life sort of shift from what you once were to who you now are? Are you living consistently with that repentance? Have you publicly proclaimed your faith with baptism? John the Baptist was given that name because of how important this aspect was to his message. So important that we would see Jesus that would be obedient to this. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll, we'll see that these are, these are the words in Jesus' great commission. Go therefore and make disciples. When you make disciples, what's, it's comma, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And we have to be honest this morning, not throwing stones, not being mean. We can disagree and still honor one another, but Roman Catholic doctrine of infant baptism is not represented in the scriptures. It is not in the Bible. You cannot find it. God has, has called you as a thinking and responsible adult to repent and believe and be baptized by immersion into water as a symbol of the reorientation, reorientation of your life to follow King Jesus. And if you refuse to obey this command, you refuse to obey the very first and most basic command of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning and you need to repent and trust Jesus, your Savior, for the first time and take steps toward the first act of obedience, which is baptism. And, and, and if you think that's difficult in this setting, how difficult would that have been in first century Roman setting? To be baptized publicly in a river, associating yourself with the crucified one and those who are facing like fate. May we be a people who confess and repent and receive the forgiveness of our sins. Takeaway number two, response number two. Embrace humility and repentance as a way of life. This is, this is not just like, oh, this is how you be saved. This is how you walk out your salvation. Uh, we should be people, Christian, uh, we, we got to graduate from thinking that sanctification is just not doing bad stuff, okay? <laughs> There's plenty of people that don't do bad stuff. We, we want to be a people who, who not just don't do bad stuff. We want to be a people who look like Jesus in our temperament, in our posture, in everything that we are. We want to be a people who, who model John the Baptist's posture here. We should be a people who are very quick to admit our own shortcomings, very quick to receive the blame in a situation, even when it feels unjust that the other person's not receiving the blame. Very honest about what we do not know and what we cannot do. We, we Christians, we are free to admit things like that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are free from having to pretend to be perfect. To be perfect is antithetical to the gospel that we believe in. It's, it's, it's against our doctrine. We don't believe that we're perfect. <laughs> Or else, why did Jesus come at all? The, the gospel frees us from the exhausting toil of getting other people to look at us to think we're better than we actually are. John the Baptist is famous for saying in John chapter 3, He must increase and I must decrease. People come to John the Baptist when his uh, preaching ministry begins to dwindle because there's a new preacher in town. Right? Jesus begins to preach, and uh, people start going over to the guy that's uh, feeding 5,000 people at a time. Right, 
And so John the Baptist doesn't have quite of a following in his teaching. And so some of his followers come up and be like, John the Baptist, like, hey, hey, like our church is shrinking, like the budget's going down, like <laughs> what's going on? Like we need to do something to compete with this Jesus guy. And, and John like corrects Jesus in John chapter 3, and he says, I'm not the Christ. And then he tells them this sort of analogy in John chapter 3, verses 26 through 30, about a bride and a bridegroom. And, and, and John says uh, this analogy basically paints the picture as if, he says, this is, this is not what I want to be. This should not be what you are like and who you are as a person. A wedding, right? There's a moment in the wedding where the bridegroom's standing here and the bride's about to come through the back door and everybody stands up and they look at the bride first, right? Oh, she's beautiful. And then you look back at the bridegroom, like, is he crying? You're wanting to see this moment where the bridegroom's eyes are fixed on the bride and the bride is fixed on the bridegroom and it's this coming together of the covenant people, right? And so, and so there's this, this beautiful moment and John the Baptist sort of tells this analogy and he, and he, and he basically says, like, for me to be upset about people going to Jesus would be like the groomsman in that moment being frustrated that nobody was looking at how great he looked in his suit. <laughs> be like the groomsman in that moment going <laughs> and interrupting the moment between the bride and the bridegroom. John the Baptist is like, it's not about me. <laughs> It's not about getting the congregation to look at me, getting the bride to look at me, getting the bridegroom to look at me. I live for the moment where the bride and the bridegroom come together and the eyes are gazed upon the right places. He must increase and I must decrease. If I live a life that attempts to get people to look at me, I'm, I'm distracting the bride from their bridegroom. How foolish to live a life like that. We, we embrace Humility and repentance as a lifestyle because we are not worthy of exaltation, but we know someone who is. And we rejoice over that someone. Takeaway number three and the last one. Rejoice over the work of Christ. In this passage, Jesus is depicted as the one who paves the way for deliverance from exile. He's the promised one of the Old Testament, mightier than any of us, un, the one of whom we are unworthy to untie his sandals. And so let us rejoice that that Jesus is the one who took the full wrath of God for us on the cross and rose again. Let's pray and respond. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this text and this example, and we pray that you would help us to respond now, first with sort of a song of repentance, of praying that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we might embody the posture of John the Baptist, and second, the second song that we sing, help us just to rejoice and lift high in the name of Jesus. We pray uh, by the power of your spirit, be in this place now and help us to respond to the word. In Jesus' name, amen.